0: There's an organization that goes by the name of the Cornucopia Institute, which started in Wisconsin. One of the founders, Will Fantle, also living here in Eau Claire. And the reason that Wisconsin is the birthplace to this organic food standards watchdog probably has a lot to do with our topography, much of which is specially suited for personal scale farming rather than factory farm monocultures. But since its founding, Cornucopia has spread all across the nation, and we're privileged to welcome a Colorado resident and organic farmer and the Cornucopia Institute's senior scientist, Linley Dixon here today. Linley's master's was in plant and social science and her PhD was in plant pathology, and her experience includes a 2-year postdoc with the USDA. I was wondering about the state of the science on organics and the situation of organic standards in the age of rampant government elimination of protections. So I called up Lindley Dixon in Durango, Colorado. Lindley, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And you're joining us from Durango, Colorado. Did you choose that area? I mean, I noticed that you're training. I mean, you were in Florida. You're in West Virginia, I think. Did you choose that specifically for the ability to have an organic farm?
2: Somewhat. My husband and I met in Colorado. We did travel quite a bit, including he did some science work in Guam. So we'd we'd kind of been all over the world. We were both working in D.C. and I was working for the USDA at the time and he was teaching middle school and high school science. And we were working really hard and commuting and organic farming is something I knew that I always wanted to try at some point. And I had met so many farmers that had tried it later in life, you know, when they were financially able to but then their bodies weren't working anymore, so their backs were hurting. Or So I knew that it was something that I wanted to start before it was too late to really get my hands dirty and, and work hard. We visited Durango. We both love Colorado. We visited the farmer's market there, and the farmer's market was just so happening. It just seemed like the community was so supportive of the farmers there. And there weren't so many farmers that it felt like we wouldn't be able to break into the scene either. So it just seemed like the right fit for us to get started.
0: So I'm talking to you, Linley, specifically because I follow the Cornucopia Institute and all the good things they do to try and help protect organic standards. How did you get into organics?
2: I truly believe that I was born a farmer and I like to tell everybody, whatever you like to do on the weekend with your spare time, try to figure out how to make a living doing that. And so I definitely grew up loving to garden and I worked on farms in the summers and some summer camps. When I was older, I was counselors or or the farm worker on some summer camps that had a farm. And so I do believe I was born a farmer, even though I was born in the middle of Baltimore City. It definitely was a calling for me. The problem, I I feel like I, I like to kind of play with this idea of the right to farm in a way that makes for an enjoyable living. And I feel like because industrial agriculture is as far along as it is, but yet it's so destructive to the farm workers and to the environment, But those are the prices that we're competing with as small, diversified organic farmers. So that right to kind of farm in this way of life, that's a beautiful way to live that so many people actually want to live. I feel like, you know, we struggle just finding land, finding markets. That right to live in that way is, in a way, kind of being taken away from us. And so that's why I work for the Cornucopia Institute is that it's a passion of mine to figure out how these small diversified organic farms can have economic justice for what they do because a lot of times there isn't a cost put on all the environmental harms that our industrial conventional agriculture is putting on everyone. The organic label was really intended to be a way to give organic farmers that economic justice and what cornucopia uh, when they were founded this was before my time this was 15 years ago it was when the industrial dairy was starting to break into the organic label at the time there were about 10,000 cows that were being milked and this was impossible to get those cows out to pasture in between milkings and so it's clear that they were violating the organic standards and the price of milk was dropping because they were now being sold and competing with these small-time organic farmers that would have only 100 cows, for example. So that's when the Cornucopia Institute was founded, when they were first started seeing these monster dairies coming into the organic label. And at the same time, I was in graduate school at West Virginia University, and I was surveying organic farms to look at the level of biodiversity on the farm and compare that with how much disease was present on the farm. Because a lot of times, the more biodiverse a farm is, the plants don't get diseases. There's no epidemics because there isn't monoculture. And these hosts, these pathogens are very host-specific. So if you have more biodiversity, the idea was diseases wouldn't spread. So that's what I was looking at. I was surveying over 200 organic farms at the time, and I would visit these gorgeous, you know, some of them were, were even fairly big, 100-acre. But what they all had in common was they were diversified. But this was back in 2000, and, I, you know, this was right when the organic standards were coming into play through the USDA and not certification agencies that were all around the country. So there were unified standards now. And you started to see that industrial model of production making its way into organics even back then. So I would get to another organic farm and there would be 100 acres, but it would be all the same variety of Roma tomatoes. And they were spraying an organically approved fungicide like copper, but they were spraying it every seven days. So it was a preventative. It wasn't in the rare occasion that there was an outbreak, which is what these natural fungicides are meant to be used in organics. It's for the rare occasion that your biodiversity doesn't hold up. So they were taking advantage of the law. It was interesting that I was seeing it at the same time, although it took me 10 more years before I joined Cornucopia, but I was seeing it in vegetable production at the same time that Mark Castell and Will Santel, the founders of Cornucopia, they started seeing it in in dairy. The reason why I work for Cornucopia is I just feel that the way that these small diversified organic farms are farming are so much better and are so much more productive. We can produce so much more food on such small acreage. So I just feel it's the right way to go, and these farms deserve that higher price point because of all the benefits that they bring to their communities, and that higher price point is being taken away from them by industrial ag.
0: And we're going to go into some of the details of all of those things that Lindley Dixon is talking about. Again, her Ph.D. is in plant pathology from University of Florida. You mentioned, Lindley, that you used to work for the USDA, and I wonder about the tensions that are inherent in working for a government agency. Oftentimes, that means you have to follow a policy that's ordered from above. And in the day of Donald Trump as president, that can be even, I imagine, more confusing because you might be, a, as you were, a very strong, organic-leaning individual. And the orders from above say, no, do this. Did you experience those tensions at that time? Or is it more obvious now that they exist?
2: You know, I didn't at the time, uh, it was under the Obama administration, but I also, at the time I worked for the Agricultural Research Service within the USDA. You know, our job was just to identify fungal pathogens around the world, just track where they were going and, and, you know, try to keep them from entering the United States. So I felt like the science that I was doing was very open source. It was available to anyone. That's, I think, the biggest problem. It was surprising to me when I entered the organic community through cornucopia after having such a positive experience with academia, you know, and going through the university system, even in agricultural departments. But I think there are these stereotypes and misconceptions of both groups. You know, there's a stereotype of what organic is, you know, by some of the scientists that they tend to be anti-technology, maybe anti-innovation, or they farm like we did back in the 1800s. I don't feel like those stereotypes are real. The farmers that I know, and us included, were incredibly innovative. And we're working on all the environmental problems that they didn't know about back in the 1800s. So we're always pushing ourselves to be better. I have friends that are inventing the CoolBot, which is a way of saving energy for small refrigeration. And it's been spread all over third world countries. These are small organic farmers that are doing these things. We're working on solar-powered tractors, for example. So we're constantly, we come up about farming with a greater purpose than producing food. We're trying to save our communities and, and our environment as well. So I think we're very innovative. But the, the other flip side is that in the organic community, they have this dislike of scientists. They feel that they're reductionist and out of this science for financial gain has come the entire industrial conventional farming that has destroyed the environment and relies completely on fossil fuels and they distrust scientists, and I don't think that's always true either, having had such a positive experience. I think both sides are incredibly humbled by the complexity that exists in the natural world, and so I think there's more in common than we realize, and that those stereotypes that we have of each other, I would love to break those barriers, and I try to do that all the time.
0: As part of your post with Cornucopia Institute, I assume there has been major governmental reorientation. I mean, for instance, Rick Perry was appointed as head of Department of Energy, I think, and that was one of the agencies that when he was running for president, he said he wanted to get rid of. Right. And when he's posted as the head of the agency... Obviously, he's not looking to nurture it in the same way that someone under President Obama was looking to nurture it. So, for the USDA, where organic standards are lodged in our government, has there been a different order coming from the top down that is affecting folks who work in that area?
2: Yeah, I think there are a couple things to highlight here when it comes to organic. You know, one of the the silliest things that we heard was, you know, for every regulation that we pass, you have to get rid of two. And when it comes to organics, this is a voluntary system. You don't have to become organic. You can produce food however you want, but if you decide to get that extra price point as a farmer to be organic, then you have to pass regulations to enforce those standards, and it's a voluntary program, and we need regulations in organic to keep it going. So that's one that just makes zero sense. The other big thing that's happened is, you know, it took about 10 years for the organic community to come up with better animal welfare standards and get that through the NOSB and then the NLP published a final rule. That was in the la- about a year ago in the final days of the Obama administration. And that final rule has been stuck. They keep delaying the implementation of it. That's been very disappointing. What's happened is we've got over 200,000 birds for eggs being cooped up in a building. And under the definition of organic, they're required to have outdoor access. Some certifiers have allowed for outdoor access to be a porch. And so there's a tiny little door on the outside of these massive buildings. And the porch is the size for maybe you know, a couple percent of those birds to actually be out there. And it's not even dirt or anything that they like to move around on. So there's really no incentive for them to go out onto a porch. So that law, that animal welfare law, would have gotten rid of that practice. And now the majority of eggs that you, organic eggs that you find in the grocery store are these massive operations. And so because they have such a lobby now, they're delaying the implementation of that rule. And the uh, Trump administration is allowing that to happen. So that's been incredibly disappointing.
0: It's crazy. Explain how that works to me, how it's both implemented that you get qualified as organic, but how they enforce it or how they make sure that it really matches the standards. I mean, you're working on the standards as part of Cornucopia Institute, but I don't know how that really trickles down to the real world.
2: Sure. Well, there's an Organic Foods Production Act that was passed in 1990. Organic farming had been going on for decades before that, but there were all these small certification agencies that were sort of by state at the time. So there were different standards in California than there were in Maine. And then the use of the word organic was being abused by farmers who were just saying, hey, we're organic, and there was no enforcement. There was no way to actually prove one way or another. And so it was pretty controversial among the founding farmers, the pioneering organic farmers at the time, whether to turn the word over to the government But now, legally, you can't use the word organic unless you are certified organic. And there are standards that all the certifiers have to follow. Now, where you run into trouble is the interpretation of those standards, like I just mentioned, outdoor access and what that means. So some certifiers are more stringent than others. And we've come to realize that there are some really good certifiers out there that truly follow the intent and the spirit of the law. But then there are certifiers that bend the rules, and in the past the NOP has allowed that to happen because the demand is so high right now. That's when cornucopia tries to blow the whistle and say this is not what is in the law, this is not how it's written, and it certainly isn't the intent of the law. If you want to get certified organic and, and legally use that word, all you would have to do is call up one of these certifiers and once a year they come out to your farm and they look at your organic systems plan. So you'll have to make sure that you've read and understand what the standards are depending on what you're producing. They ask you questions, they look for receipts and paperwork, and it's fairly stringent, this oversight. And then the National Organic Program, their job is to oversee the inspectors. So they call it a third-party system. So that there's supposed to be more integrity in this system because it kind of gets rid of that conflict of interest. The problem is the, the demand for organics is just so high that they've had a problem keeping the shelves full with these small diversified farms. And I've always felt that that's okay, that there's no reason why we have to have supply of organic anything hundred percent of the time. I think it's a price point really is about supply and demand then more farms will come into existence to fill that supply over time, that we shouldn't be bending the standards to meet the demand right away. I think we're capable of doing it. But as I said, more and more young farmers are trying to get into this. They're finding that the price point is so low because what is labeled organic isn't really what the standards were meant to actually be. That's why I feel that cornucopia has such a powerful role to play and really no other organization is overseeing organic integrity right now. So it's, it's important that we do what we do. as difficult as it is to challenge authority sometimes.
0: Let's look at the specifics. For instance, you said eggs. You've got 10,000 chickens or something in a building and a little porch. Clearly, that's not organic. Clearly, that doesn't match the standards that people think of when they want to buy something organic. So what you're saying is that the NOP, the National Organic Program, they certify that someone is organic along the way?
2: So the National Organic Program certifies the certifiers. In a way, there's a conflict of interest there. So the certifiers are trying to make ends meet as well, and they get money anytime they certify someone. So they have a financial interest in visiting a farm and saying, yep, you pass the standards. But what the NOP is supposed to then do is check the certifiers and make sure they're enforcing the law. And they have approved the meaning of outdoor access to be a porch when it's clear that that wasn't the intent of the, of the law. And then we've got other certifiers who have stayed true to the standards. This is an issue with a lot of things besides eggs. You know, with dairy, they're not getting out to pasture. The hydroponic industry has made its way into organics as well. And, you know, soil is mentioned over 20 times in the organic standards, and the idea is that you're cycling nutrients, compost, on the farm as much as possible and bringing in very few inputs. And then you've got these hydroponic systems, which... They're completely viable ways of producing food. They're just not organic systems where you're cycling nutrients. And so some certifiers have said, sure, we can certify this as organic as long as you're not using any unapproved inputs. Whereas other certifiers are saying, no way. I mean, look at the law requires you to foster soil fertility. There's no way that that could be certified organic. And so at the same time, other certifiers have not certified hydroponic systems but the nop is then the one who is supposed to enforce the standards and you know we believe that means not certifying hydroponic systems but they have allowed this confusion to carry on to the point where we now have quite a large hydroponic lobby within the organic label so actually getting what you know all the soil farmers feel is true in organics to actually be enforced it feels like you know what happened with the eggs over and over again here where the the lobby is now so big within the label that we'll never be able to get back to the original intent of the standards.
0: You know, I want to make sure I'm really understanding the structure of this because, you know, there is the NOP, the National Organic Program. There's the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board. There's Cornucopia, which is an alternative group that's trying to act as a watchdog on organic standards. And then there's all the farmers, and there's large farms. There's factory farms, essentially, and family farms as well. And they're all different actors in this play. Who appoints the members of the NOP and the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board?
2: So the National Organic Program, those people are appointed by the administration. So right now, that would be the Trump administration. The NOSB is the National Organic Standards Board, and that is appointed by the NOP. The National Organic Standards Board is a 15-member advisory board They're supposed to give advice to the NOP for how to implement the standards, the Organic Foods Production Act. And those 15 members are made up of different members of the organic community. So there's farmers, environmentalists, scientists, distributors, certifiers. They're all on that board. And so they bring different perspectives when they're coming up with whether they're voting to allow a new input into organics, for example. And then the NOP is supposed to listen to what the NOSP recommends. And that doesn't always happen. So for example, this year, the NOSB voted to remove conventional whey protein to be used in organic products because there's now enough organic whey protein available. The NOSB recommended that. The NOP decided, for whatever reason, we don't really know why, but they just said they weren't going to implement that. They can do that. You know, it's just an advisory committee. The NOSB just provides recommendations, but it really hasn't ever been done before. And honestly, when that starts to happen, that's the beginning of the end of the organic label because that's where the NOSB is supposed to be the buffer for that conflict of interest.
0: And so we start looking at alternatives to how to certify that. Before we go to that topic, let's talk some more about hydroponics. The only time I've ever tried to grow anything hydroponically is when you put uh, avocado seed in water and try and let it grow. I think that's maybe the closest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fun. (laughs) Why are people interested in hydroponics and why is that cheaper or competitive? Why does that somehow compete with the way that you would grow things in soil? It seems to me counterintuitive.
2: Yeah, and and I want to just start off by saying that we really don't have anything against hydroponic growing. It's a really cool way to do things, sometimes in the inner city, when you can take an old warehouse and grow food. There are also some really cool organic operations that are taking rooftops and converting them into gardens, but they're using compost and soil and they're cycling nutrients from the city with worms and things like that, and so... You know, we think there's other ways to grow organically inside the city. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of these fun little hydroponic operations that are shooting up all over the place that are producing food in cool new ways. But they're just not organic because organic does require the cycling of nutrients. And a lot of these systems are... Just taking fertilizers, even though they're organically approved, so a really common one is hydrolyzed soybean meal, they're using that completely for their fertility instead of composting, for example. So what we're basically doing is certifying right now what is conventional GMO, Roundup-ready soybeans. It's almost like certifying that as organic because that type of input is being grown for massive hydroponic operations for the inputs for those operations So we have, like, wholesome harvest is a really common one, or driscolls, which they're producing mostly tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers in containers with an inert media like cocoa choir or peat moss. It doesn't have any nutrients in it. And they're supplying 100% of their fertility through the irrigation system. Those large operations are using hydrolyzed soybean meal that is conventionally farmed right now. If you look at the law that requires the cycling of nutrients through the soil, they're just not following the law. They're able to do it on a scale. I mean, this is industrial production, monoculture production. So, I would even say that they're not following the diversity requirements of the law. But it's hundreds of acres under plastic with, you know, cement floors in containers and, you know, you've got just tomatoes growing for hundreds of acres. You know, that's that's not organic. You know, it might be a really cheap way to produce food, but do it under your own label or just conventionally, it's just not an organic system.
0: We're going to get into more of the details about hydroponics with Lindley Dixon. She's with Cornucopia. But first I want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. There's place to find more information about our guests and to find links to them and to the stations where we're broadcast, all that kind of information on northernspiritradio.org. Also, there's place to post comments We really value two-way communication. We want the inputs to go in both directions. So please do post a comment when you visit and also remember to click donate when you come. The point is we're not funded by government. We're not funded by industry corporations. We're funded by our listeners, so please remember to click donate when you come. More important, though, is this diverse set of news and music that is local community radio stations. Alternative media is so essential, and that's why an organization like Cornucopia Institute is so important, because they're standing outside the mainstream, providing input that otherwise we wouldn't get. Community radio stations do that. Alternative media does that. So please start by supporting them. They're more important than supporting the rest of us because without those sources of information we are going to suffer. And fortunately, we've got people like Lindley Dixon, who's helping provide alternative information. She's staff scientist with the Cornucopia Institute. Their website, cornucopia.org, if you can't spell it. Again, the link is on org. Her PhD is in plant pathology. Her master's in plant and soil science. And then she's also worked with the USDA along the way with their Systematic Botany and Mycology Laboratory, where she used advanced things like DNA sequencing and cloning to identify fungal plant pathogens, that kind of stuff puts her a grade above me. I, yes, I had a physics major, but I never went to the level that I'm sure that she's gone to. And of course, what you've been doing lately, Lindley, and this another important part of it, is you're doing on-the-ground organic farming. I don't suppose that the Cornucopia Institute is ever going to have to step up to you and say, Lindley, you're not doing it the proved way. <laughs> I think you're staying on top of this. And we were just talking about hydroponics, and I've got a better idea. Again, I'm assuming in some way this is more economically advantageous. You mentioned, you know, if you're talking about inner city and you don't have access to dirt on the ground, then it's understandable that you have to go with alternative methods. Is it also economically desirable? Is that why they're going in this direction?
2: Yeah, I just to your first point, though, I'd like to say that, you know, I think you can be organic in the middle of the city. There's a lot of organic matter that you can collect. You know, people bag their leaves in plastic and put them in the landfill. Restaurants throw away so much food. And there's a really cool operation in D.C. that I mentioned earlier, is you know, growing organically in the soil in compost on rooftops. And so if you like this idea of the cycling of nutrients rather than you know, these unsustainable systems that are really only possible cheaply as long as there is cheap fuel, which won't last. You know, in a post-petroleum world, we will be organic farming. You know, I think all the organic farmers are part of that ideology where we see what's happening environmentally and we want to be part of the solution. We want to be the change that needs to happen in the world. And so for that, organic farming has been so empowering.
0: You know, one of the principles of organic farming, I understand, is feed the soil, not the plant. Of course, you get paid for the plant, the fruit of the plant that you grow. You don't get paid for soil.
2: It's a good point. I wish we were. <laughs> We've got beautiful soils.
0: <laughs> and I think that for society, there is payback for having good soil. Is that true? Is it obvious to you as a plant pathologist or as an organic farmer that having the better quality soil in somehow pays back the world as a whole? I mean, does it prevent climate change? does it prevent erosion why better quality soil
2: it does so many things and i think that's why this is the central tenant for organic farmers feed the soil not the plant because there are so many things it does you mentioned a few but the first thing that i should say right off the bat is that you can taste the difference i don't know if you've ever had a a farmer's market carrot from a good farm that's been composting in their soil but there's just there's no comparison. You know, the skin on a cucumber is going to be so delicate and crunchy and the tomatoes are just so rich in flavor. You just go on and on. And it's probably because of some of the minerals that are present in the soil that I think one of the things that both organic farmers and the higher up you get in, through academia, the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And that humbleness is another similarity, I think, that people in academia and organic farmers have in common. But I do want to touch also on the idea that we really can reverse climate change by working with our soils in a sustainable way. If you think about how plants take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and where does that carbon dioxide go once you're done with harvesting your crop? And what organic farmers do is they put that crop waste back into the soil and they, they capture it in a form that the soil holds on to that carbon for a long time. And this really can be the solution to climate change. Soil is a carbon sink. And now more than ever, we really need to think about cycling nutrients and combating climate change. And so organic farming is part of the solution. Oh, I should mention one more thing, too. I, I farm in a dry area. It's a semi-desert. And the more organic matter you have in your soil, the more it holds on to water, the less you have to water. So, you know, we've gotten our organic matter up from when we first started farming, it was about 2.5%, and now we get measurements around 8% organic matter in the soil. So we've actually been able to measure the increase in carbon. We went from having to water, you know, maybe three times a week, and it's all, we do it all through drip irrigation. We're really aware of minimal water use, but now we're only watering once a week. So that shows just the ability of organic matter and humus to hold on to water in the soil.
0: Is there more we should know about hydroponics? Again, the recommendation is taken to the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board, 15 members. And I think one of the things that's happened even on that board is there's more and more representation by large industry, by factory farms in essence. So they're organic, at least in intent, name, origin, but they've become such large economic forces that economics starts to overshadow, I think, the organics intent of the thing originally. Is that true or am I, again, oversimplifying?
2: No, that's very true. We had seven members that voted to restrict the amount of liquid fertility input to less than 20% of what the plant needs. And so that was a way to allow container growing with compost and then a limited amount of fertility. It's kind of a compromise proposal. And seven members voted to have that restriction, that 20% liquid fertility restriction in play. And the people that voted that way were, you know, the small diversified farmers or a couple of people from academia. These are really deep thinkers. You could tell they just had the most in-depth reasons why they support the complexity of all the trophic levels in the soil and how that can't be replicated in containers with just cocoa choir and hydrolyzed soybean meal. So these were really impressive NOSB members, in my opinion. And then you had eight NOSB members who voted against that. And, you yeah, know, it's just disappointing. Some of them are distributors. Some of them work for some small co-ops, and they just want to keep their supply year-round, which, you know, I can understand, but we have a conventional food system, so nobody's going hungry here. The reality is that the best farmers are just being pushed out of the market and having to start their own co-ops again, and it's not under the organic label anymore because less and less the organic label is not representing the way that they're farming. We had someone on the NOSB from Driscoll's who, you know, only 14% of what they sell is organic, but they are growing in these hydroponic containers, and so somehow they've got a vote on the NOSB. That person just left, but this hydroponic issue has been going on for two years now, so they had quite an influence.
0: And again, how do people get on the NOSB? Is it coming from the industry, putting people on? I mean, are there is there a union of farmers? You said they were appointed by the NOP, the National Organic Program, but that's appointed by the administration. So does that just mean that cornucopia can get kicked off easily?
2: Well, I don't ever foresee a cornucopian getting up there because we are kind of the active voices that are challenging the system. But People in the organic community appoint each other. You can appoint yourself and put yourself in the running to be appointed. But the NOP ultimately is the one that makes the decision. And Clonacopia has filed FOIAs to figure out how those decisions are made. But you've got organizations like the Organic Trade Association who nominates people And often the people that they are nominating to be on the board are the ones that are being chosen. So it just feels a little bit out of control at this point where the industry is just having too much of an influence. And it was really meant to be a movement of the small diversified farmer.
0: Again, you can follow up on a lot of these issues, folks, on the website for the Cornucopia Institute, which is cornucopia.org. If you can't spell that, which a lot of us can't, the link is on nordenspiritradio.org, as well as a link to more information about Lindley Dixon, who, again, plant pathologist, is what her PhD is in, master's in plant and solar science, and with this particular study, I think, of plant pathogens, it's particularly important to running your own organic farm, Lindley, that you actually know what you have to control and how you can control it with minimal intervention. Is that an appropriate term to use with minimal intervention? I know that organic farmers worked very hard
2: Yes, we do. And it's a very humbling experience because, you know, every season something goes wrong, right? It's a particularly mild winter and the insects are just horrible or you're trying to get an early tomato. And so you're, you know, what we'll do is we'll use these kind of passive ways to collect heat in water and then that hot water is slowly released at night and you've got an inner cover to trap that heat close to the plants. And, you know, maybe you'll open it too late the next day and it overheated and you'll lose your blossoms or something. So you're always making mistakes, but hopefully you're not making them twice. But it's incredibly character building. You, you're you working really hard and you're not making a lot of money. And so I just I feel so strongly that for all that you're doing for your communities and your environment, that you really should get the price that you need. Not to make a lot of money, but just to make a living, because this is what people are ultimately wanting to support when they buy organic. And I think they feel really gypped when they find out that these are all chickens produced in a conventional way. There is so much a spiritual component to what we do, in addition to, you know, the practicalities of why it's the right thing to do. I just hope that it's something that we can find somehow to provide economic justice for these family-scale farmers that are really working hard to do the right thing.
0: Well, you mentioned, Lindley, the spiritual component, and of course, that's part of Spirit in Action and why I do this program. It's really important to me to identify what motivates people to live these better lives that have to do with peace and justice and environmental concerns. And so a spiritual component for you, part of your spiritual component, I think, is probably just having your hands in the dirt. Could you talk a little bit about what in your life got you there? You said you grew up farming. Can you also mention explicitly the explicitly either religious or spiritual parts of your life that moved you in this direction?
2: Yeah, I loved my job working for the USDA, but ultimately I was in a building with lab coat and latex gloves on, and uh, I wasn't feeling connected to the natural world. And I just got back from the National Organic Standards Board meetings that happened twice a year where Cornucopia goes and tries to represent the viewpoint of the small diversified farmer. That, of course, was sitting in meetings for a week, and I got back from such a disappointing vote that didn't go our way. And I was able to get the hoe in the ground and kind of run it through the spinach and chard that we've got growing in the tunnels for the winter and it's a beautiful soil. And I know the complexity that's going on in there. I know how much that I don't know. I think one of my favorite facts is that you know, there's more atoms in the tip of your finger than stars in the known universe. So there's so much going on at the molecular level that we've just brushed the surface understanding and the complex molecular interactions and feedback loops that you learn about in graduate school and when you're doing research. You just it's humbling, and when you farm. I remember when I was first reading about it, about organic farming back in my master's program back in West Virginia. And they, you know, the books would talk about things like inviting in natural insect predators to get your aphids by, you know, letting plants flower. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, that doesn't work. You know, there's insecticides for a reason. That sounds too hippie, right? That You can invite (laughs) in these predators and they'll actually control the pests. And the crazy thing is when you have a diversified farm, it really works. You know, you don't, the pests don't get too out of control. And if they do, you've got your row of parsley from last season that you let flower. And man, the buzzing of all these insect predators on top of those flowers. It happens and it works. So the aphids were coming, and then you just wait a week, take a breath, and the predators do their job. And the same thing goes on with the soil. If you are composting leaves with the worms, and you're just doing your job with cover cropping, and you're getting your animals—you know, we have some egg-laying chickens—and you're getting them out on pasture and rotating that, those chickens around on pasture that soil is fertile in the end and so it's incredibly, there's a lot of knowledge, local based knowledge that you have to have and organic farmers tend to share that information. There's so much community involved in it too and we've got our customers that come up to us every week and are just devoted to our lettuce mix. They just you know, love the crunch in it and the sweetness and So for me, it's, that is my church, you know, all my customers and my spirituality comes from just getting to work and see the miracle of it all happen before me. So that was healing for me after the NOSB meetings was to just go get my fingers dirty in the soil and. And I don't think those eight members who voted against that compost container rule, I don't think that they have really ever spent much time in the soil. And if they had, I think they would have voted the other way. They would have gotten it.
0: So that's your church these days. Is that the church that you came from growing up in, uh, you said, within the city of Baltimore?
2: Well, my family didn't go to church, but we I grew up in Quaker schools. And so I have a lot of Quaker values I remember going to meeting for worship sometimes with my family and I do value silence and I value learning from my other community members. I think there's so much to learn from each other. I wouldn't say that I'm a religious person, but I am very spiritual and, you know, there is something magical and it is possibly a placebo effect. But if I know that I'm eating the lamb from my neighbor that I know so well and i you know, I'm friends with her. I know how hard she's working. I know how happy the life of that animal was. It tastes better. That probably is the placebo effect because it would make me feel better, you know, if I was eating conventional food, but someone told me, this is Heidi's, you know, this is your neighbors. That it would make me feel differently about that food because I know all the benefits that this way of farming is bringing. So, In some way, it's placebo. In some way, you can taste it. But, you know, I I don't want to be lied to. I I do want to know what I'm supporting. And I feel like people who are buying organic, they're looking for that connection. And they're starting to not be able to trust it. And so they're having to go back to their farmer's market. Ultimately, I think that that market in the grocery store should be for the real organic farmers.
0: Well, and we hope it will get there. You know, I'm tempted to jump around so much, Lindley, as we talk about all of these different components of organic certification. But one of the things that I saw an article on, on the cornucopia.org website, was that pioneering farmers are actually threatened to jump ship. That's the heading that I saw. And so there's a number of traditionally organic organizations and farms. There's places like Organic Valley, which is a lot of small farms that are banded together. They're collectively, they're a very large force because there's so many of them banded together. I think they're not degrading what organic means in the sense of the USDA certification. They're not for degrading that. I may be mistaken there. But I think as organics has become a bigger and bigger draw for consumers, the people who just want to get in it for the buck have grown in both number and size. Could you talk about some of the organic producers who are more likely to shade what organic means in order to make more profit, I guess.
2: We point out at Cornucopia that there really are two organic labels right now. Of course, it's one label, but behind that label, there are the small diversified farmers that founded the movement. And there are farmers that we call input substitution farmers, where they're just using, you know, monocultural, industrial, confined animal feeding operations to simply input an organically approved input for something that is not approved um, but still have the same system. As a consumer, your job is to do the best you can to know your farmer a little bit more, and that's what Cornucopia helps consumers do is, you know, which brand of milk should I buy? Which brand of eggs should I buy? And you can look at the scorecards that we produce to help you go that extra step and find the smaller diversified farmers that are really following the letter and intent of the Organic Foods Production Act. So that's what our job is, is to help you do that.
0: So I think what you're saying, and which has been my experience when I've looked into the detail, and again, you're mentioning also the organic scorecards that are on the cornucopia.org website. So you can look at dairy or eggs or yogurt or whatever. You can find the scorecards on specific items and find which producers are towing the real line for organics as opposed to that, which will make a quicker buck. Do you specifically look at organizations and say, you know, East Winds is trustworthy, Organic Valley is trustworthy or not? Do you look at it that way?
2: We do, and that's what the scorecards do. When we were working on this hydroponic issue, it doesn't necessarily always come down to the small farmers either there are some larger operations that are still following the law so sometimes it can be scale limiting so you know you really aren't capable of putting more than a couple hundred cows out to pasture and getting them back in for milking twice a day so that in that sense the organic production can be scale limiting but for example the hydroponic issue we were working with Lady Moon Farms who they're incredibly diversified but they farm on 2500 acres in Pennsylvania In the summer and then in the winter months, they're down in Georgia and Florida. So it can be done right on a large scale. So, yeah, we do that. We try to help identify specifically the bad actors and the good actors by name. And when you were talking about those good actors threatening to jump ship, you know, I feel like that threat has been there from the beginning because there were so many people skeptical, so many farmers skeptical about whether the standards would, would actually be enforced, whether there would be organic integrity. And, you know, from the beginning, that industrial size pressure has come under the organic label. but. You really have a perfect storm right now. The Washington Post this summer released a series of investigative reports showing fraudulence in organics. One really big one is fake imports that are coming in. You know, this is conventional grain is what they looked at. But this is happening with fruit and vegetable, other other imports as well. But they exposed these massive grain cargo ships that were being labeled as organic that were actually sprayed with a fungicide. And the European Union rejected them and, and the United States welcomed it in under the organic label. So that story came out. They also did an expose on something cornucopia has been working on since the founding, which is the Aurora Dairy in Colorado, just not getting their cows out to pasture as the law requires. And so that came out as well. And then this hydroponic issue. And I think, so I think you know, those three things, I should also include the confinement of the chickens for egg production. It really seems like it's the perfect storm for a lot of these small farmers to either find another label or do an add-on. Some people are talking about you start with organic certification as the basis and then you can get an additional label that allows you to, you can still use the word organic because you're organically certified, but somehow we need to figure out how to identify the real organic farmers from the fake ones, unfortunately.
0: So I think maybe what you need is not only the organic label, but you need another one that says, really? And that's the one that, <laughs> on top of the other it's one. It's so
2: depressing, but yes, I agree. <laughs> and you can tell I'm so emotional about this. My, you know, my voice shakes because I, just, I care so deeply. And everybody who's actively involved at these NOSB meetings, we all care so much because we know it's the right thing to do. And it's only going to become more and more important. As environmental issues really hit ahead,
0: you mentioned Lindley, the Aurora dairies, their high metals facility, what I understand is cornucopia took pictures that showed that they weren't complying at least at certain moments, and the government refuses to enforce it at all. It was just summarily dismissed. Am I characterizing that correctly what the, what happened and and how we're actually not getting the protection from our organic labeling that we should?
2: Right, so the law requires a minimum of 120 days of pasturing. It also says anytime the weather is nice that you should have your cows out. So Cornucopia you know, hired a plane to fly over on a perfectly beautiful summer day and none of the cows were out. The plane flew over and the NOP dismissed those images as just a moment in time. Well, the Washington Post investigation was over several days and... Again, the NOP dismissed that as, well, just several days in time. But it's clear that they're not doing any investigations themselves. They're looking at the paperwork provided by the certifier. They're announcing inspections. So we did a FOIA request to find out whether or not when the NOP visited the Aurora facility, whether they said the day that they were coming. And guess what they did? They told them they were going to come. So, of course, it was easy for them to get their cows out that day. So it it just seems like the system is set up to protect these people, and that's that's what the NOP has been doing is protecting them.
0: I particularly liked the headline that you had for that article, Organic's get-out-of-jail-free card was (laughs) issued to the dairy. It's unfortunate. Again, there's a mentality that I think is mistaken, this attempt to reduce regulations, because regulations by another name are protections. So, yeah, we'll get rid of regulations, which for one person... I'm looking at regulation for another person. I'm looking at this is what's keeping me alive. This is what's keeping my food of high quality. And you're getting rid of my protections. We've got to stop using their language and use our language because theirs is tilted toward the industry and not towards the consumer.
2: Right, and, and people perceive regulations as inhibiting growth. In a voluntary program, You know, I don't feel that regulations are this stigma. You know, they are required to actually get what you want. You know, the consumer is looking for authentic organic or they wouldn't be paying more for it. So this is voluntary to join in here. And you can always grow food conventionally. I always want to highlight that. Everybody's signing up for this program because of the higher price point. But the consumer is the one that really needs to be protected because they're the ones spending the extra dollar.
0: Absolutely. One more area of study that I think you've been involved in, Lindley, and again, we're speaking with Lindley Dixon, who's a staff scientist with the Cornucopia Institute, was about carrageenan. Tell me about carrageenan. Most people don't even necessarily know what it is, but it's one of those things they find down on the label.
2: Yeah, it's an inflammatory agent, unfortunately. There's a lot of research out now from the public sector. You know, This is kind of open source research that's pretty important when you're looking at studies to identify where the funding came from. So there are a lot of studies coming out of the National Institute of Health that in the University of Chicago. And then there's some others around the world, too. We actually have, if anybody's interested in this, we have over 100 different studies, publications that you can look up and read yourself showing the inflammatory action of carrageenan in the gut. So it's very well documented. And unfortunately, the carrageenan industry is spending a lot of money to produce their own research showing different results that it's perfectly safe. So there's studies out there that show both. In the fall of 2016, so this was last year, this time, because I just got back from the NOSB meetings, the NOSB voted to take carrageenan off the list of substances that are allowed in organic products. You know, there's a year that it takes to implement that. So right now, we're kind of in this in-between stage where the NOSB has voted to take it off the list, but the NOP hasn't actually followed through with that recommendation yet. And so the fear is that it will still be allowed to be in organic food, and the NOP won't follow that NOSB recommendation. So we'll see what happens.
0: Again, tell me, I didn't even know there was a carrageenan industry because I'm not even sure I know what carrageenan is and why it would be included in. I understand why they include sugar in because people go, yum, yum.
2: <laughs> You're right. I should have started with that. That's uh, to improve mouthfeel. So one of the things that if, if it's going to be a conventional product allowed in organic food, you know, it has to be considered safe. And we don't feel that carrageenan even, you know, has that. But the other thing is that it has to be essential. And that's another thing that we don't feel carrageenan falls under essentiality. You know, that comes down to consumer preference. Do you care if your yogurt or it's usually put in those alternative dairy products? So like almond milks and soy milks and things like that. So do you care if you have to shake it first? And if that bothers you, then you'll put carrageenan in there to make sure that it's all the solids don't settle to the bottom. Personally, I prefer to just shake it and, and make sure that my food is safe.
0: And then we get the additional benefits of exercise by shaking. So, I mean, okay. <laughs> it pays it pays for our health two ways. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about. There's a whole range of things. If people go to cornucopia.org and they click on the news, uh, and there's the news from Cornucopia as well as there's the scorecards, there's a wealth of information on that site. And if you care about organic standards, It's so valuable to have an outside watchdog like Cornucopia. Again, Lindley Dixon is staff scientist with Cornucopia since 2013. She has her own organic farm, and if you want to check her out, look for adobehousefarm.com. There's so much good work that you're doing to help us live up to our best possibilities, and that means obviously struggling against those who want to tug things in a different direction. Fortunately, with a watchdog like you, Lindley, and with Cornucopia, Copia, we can better trust what we see and what we're told. And I'm really thankful for that work and for that you joined us here today for Spirit in Action.
2: Thank you for giving me the time to speak about what I care about.
0: As a reward, I hope that you send me some of your organic produce up to Wisconsin, because we've got the gray skies. You still got the sunlight. It's so wonderful <laughs> that you lightened my day by joining us today. Thanks again, Lennie. Thank you. You'll find cornucopia.org on the website. There's links on northernspiritradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us today for Spirit in Action. We'll see you next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.